I'm always struck by what a privilege it is to be able to do this work together, to be in a room, a diverse room of peoples coming from many different backgrounds and stories and ancestries, representing a whole range of of our human experience. We don't know each other personally, some, some, some of you might know each other, but generally speaking, when we come into a retreat like this, uh, we come here to support each other in our awakening at a time that is very challenging. I think all of us are aware of the context that we live within now, um, how much of a profound crisis we have brought ourselves to uh, in our human journey. This afternoon, uh, I was sitting um, in my room and I just was pausing. I was aware that I would have to give a talk tonight and I was just ruminating around that. And I just was started to look out the window and watch the soft snow fall and how gentle that was. And there's something about the softness of it that uh, invited me to soften in my body And as I did that, I I was struck by how peaceful the snow was as it was falling. But I also noticed that I I felt a sense of of grief, of of a sort of profound heartbreak, actually. Something that I have been with a lot, but don't always allow myself to feel. Um, because my mind goes into a cognitive strategizing mode in response to what's going on around us in our society. Societies, many of us represent many different societies and live within them. Um, But if I moved underneath some of the outrage that I can feel and some of the reactivity I can feel I just felt this heartbreak at how we've got to where we've gotten to and uh, and how it was actually very uh, good just to allow that feeling to be there and to to contemplate that we're sort of in times of heartbreak. (laughs) Um, That somehow every way that we move in our strategies and in our agendas, we often move away from this fundamental fact an emotion, an experience of how vulnerable we actually are in the face of enormous forces that seem so destructive and that are actually generating a very profound planetary emergency 
from which we don't really collectively, we're struggling to respond to effectively enough, quickly enough. And I think most of us live with that at a conscious level, a subliminal level, but it's shaping a tremendous amount for us as our bodies are actually earth bodies, which means that the the body feels what's happening in the earth. Uh, However much we dwell in our cognitive, sometimes disassociated mind states, what is felt within the body is very resonant within a relational field and what's experienced not only collectively within our small communities, but also within our larger communities and even globally. So this is a lot to be with. And it's a lot to be with to to realize that we've gotten to where we've gotten to because of our ego consciousness that has really been driven by, um, by greed, by lust for power, um, by hatred, um, and by ignorance, um, to some degree or another, and delusion, these very primal forces that have shaped our human journey over millennia, and how uh, powerful these forces are. And we experience them within our own mind, and we experience them being playing out on a, on a, on the stage of the world. So that we now are in a time of uh, the mass extinction of wildlife and animal life and plants and flowers and creatures, rain, uh, rainforests and oceans and fishes. And, and this year in the Arctic is the, the warmest it's ever been in recorded history where scientists are saying it's unprecedented that... Uh, the, the warmth of it has staggered them, that it's just crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and I think this sense of a, a crazy, crazy stuff <laughs> is almost like a daily body blow. Crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and it's hard, hard to, to meet that. And all of this is really the cumulative momentum from what's gone on for, for centuries, for a long, long story. It's a long, long story that's brought us to this place. And it's a, we can thread it out and look at very particular narratives within that story and happenings within that story, devastations of peoples and continents in that story. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a collective story, uh, a story generated from systems, as Bell Hooks says, that are uh, shaped by an imperialistic, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy, which are are big words to use, and perhaps we react to some of those words, but they're important words to contemplate in terms of hierarchies of power and how those hierarchies have been shaped over centuries that have ripped us really from a sense of belonging to each other through force uh, divisions, through delusion, uh, through greed, through these primal forces that we're in some ways attempting to awaken out of for our own sustainability. And yet these forces have been there from the beginning of time and obviously have, been, have dominated the convulsions of history that we've, many of us have lived through, 
great sweeps of history of, of wars and revolutions and atomic bombs and the Shoah, the holocausts, holocausts that have gone on, the colonialisms and the genocides and these very, very large sweeps of history that have devastated and that resonate into, the, into our current times. Ripping us out, ripped out of something uh, that has, um, was in many ways part of our deeper way of knowing. A um, long, long time ago where we experienced ourselves more as within a web of life, as ensouled within nature and within the cosmos. And in that ensoulment and in that sense of deep belonging, there was a sacredness. There was a sense of that uh, living things were living things. They weren't inanimate objects to us to control and dominate and extract from, that they had a sacredness within them, that they needed to be respected. That our experience of the religious was really as a participatory being, as being able to be part of that web of life, part of the cosmos, part of the subtle realms, in relationship to it all, and ways of knowing that we're mediated not through beliefs and doctrines and dogmas, but through direct experience, through dreams and visions, visions, meditative states, altered states, intuition. And that these ways of knowing kept us respectful and connected within all forms of life. And that sense of being ripped out of that is a very old story as well, where we've individuated into such a separative experience of ourselves that we've lost that sense of belonging. And that's a very, very old and ancient painful wound emerging in, uh, originally in the mists of time, but even in our more recent recorded history right back even into the 1500s where Francis Bacon, the early scientific rationalistic, rationalistic moving towards the enlightenment of the 1700s, the Eurocentric enlightenment, not the enlightenment of the ancient sages, where he said, nature bound in service, hounded in her wanderings, put on a rack, must be tortured for her secrets. And this is a sort of um, way that we've been in relationship to the natural world that we live within all the time to the point that we're still very much involved in that consciousness. We don't see ourselves as belonging to nature, belonging to each other, belonging to the cosmos. We see ourselves as in opposition to that, frightened by these forces that we're not Uh, we don't understand, dominated by them and therefore trying to dominate them instead, fearful of the reality of of change and of death and of um, impermanence, trying to forever seek to hold on and to stop the shifting sands of time, building empires, building colonies, colonizing. And then those that get in the way, we decimate and overwhelm and, and, um, and kill off. 
So these are these are very, um, you know, the heart of this. Uh, these enormous forces. There's also the forces of that which, which moves towards, in spite of all of that, still tries to move towards the beautiful, the loving, the caring, the connecting, the just. And in some ways growing out of some of these devastating experiences of, say, of the last century and even beginning into this century, these great movements towards human rights and social justice and the emergence of, of millions of different of organizations, literally millions of organizations in the service of humanity, in the service of love, in the service of environmental care. This also represents another part of our human spirit, of our human capacity and our human potential. And that's always also been with us, the heroic, the standing up against injustice, the pull towards a finer way of being here together, towards recognizing our commonality, towards service, towards beauty, towards the dreams of discovery, towards awakening, towards enlightenment, true enlightenment, freedom. These forces, these great forces that we live within have always been, as Dara said, that there's a particularity about the times that we're in, that perhaps we've never in our remembered history, the planet has been through billions of years of its own evolutionary processes, from great ice ages and meteorite strikes and great wipeouts of extinctions and so on. We don't remember that, but in our human journey, we've never come to this particular precipice at such speed. But these forces have also always been with us, or always part of our journey that we'll always have at the heart of our human experience this sense of struggle. And in many ways, the, in the work that we're doing in this uh, contemplative, uh, meditative work is really going to the heart of that struggle. It's really understanding something very important that however much we change the systems that we're in, and we know that we need to change the systems that we're living in, that the systems that we've lived in that have been shaped over the last centuries are actually killing us off, literally, leading to an unsustainable planet. So we have to change the economic, the social, the, econ- um, the environmental systems that, we, that we're in. And that's an enormous struggle in and of itself. But if we don't infuse any system, if we, we advance ourselves technologically, which is happening at great speed, and will happen in the next 10, 20 years with the arrival of artificial intelligence, that's another whole piece that's coming in at speed. And there's a lot of salvationary idealism about that, that the technology will save us from ourselves. But somehow I don't think so. I don't think that we can just rely on technological advancement if we don't actually shift our own consciousness, if we don't infuse whatever 
mediums that we're using, whatever structures that we're using, whatever technologies that we're using, if we don't infuse that with basic human awakening, basic human values, basic human ethics. And so the Buddha said in his own journey, which was catalyzed, his own awakening was catalyzed through an enormous struggle even on the night of his awakening as he sat under the Bodhi tree and the archetypal image of the Buddha sitting there at the point of giving up, having tried all sorts of different pathways of awakening that were available to him from the times that he were in, was, was in, was practicing within, none of them working, and then coming to his own particular way, which we'll explore as the retreat unfolds through this deep inquiry and insight into the nature of consciousness itself, contemplating the nature of mind directly, not just trying to elevate out of human experience, but really contemplating it. That moment that he's sitting under the Bodhi tree, sort of archetypal struggle between the force of awakening that he was opening into and the force of Mara and ignorance that was trying to overwhelming and delude him. So even he um, had this experience of this struggle and overcame that struggle to break up the foundations and the causes of ignorance in the human mind and to actualize the awakening, enlightened consciousness which is available for each of us. And he was able to say from that awakening, and this is quoting from the suttas, just as one faring through a forest should see an ancient path traveled by people of old with beautiful pools, groves, and gardens, so have I seen an ancient path traversed by the enlightened ones of old. Having fully come to know this path, I have established this way for the welfare of all. This is uh, speaking to that in the heart of this struggle, in the heart of these enormous forces, in the heart of the very times that we're in, when we can feel collapsed and overwhelmed, we can feel very reactive, um, very enraged, very uh, ineffectual, very impotent. Uh, We can feel very despairing um, sometimes. And we can also feel very hopefully and very energized and go through all sorts of feelings. But at the heart of whatever time and whatever situation that we're in, that there is this ancient path. The Buddha said that it wasn't he that really um, found this way. It's like he rediscovered it. He saw that it's always been there through time immemorial, this path of awakening. And it expresses itself in many different ways and forms. And he had a particular way of expressing this path and laying out this path, which he offered for all uh, human beings and devas, angelic, subtle beings, or any being, animals too, actually, became his disciples. Nagas, those that control, beings that control the weather. <laughs> They'd be handy to, to get to know these days, wouldn't they? Uh, the, one of the, uh, master, the, the Chinese master, that very influential in our practice, Master Xunhua, had Naga disciples great dragons that he would be able to um, help. They helped him uh, control the weather sometimes. Lots of stories around that. 
Anyhow, that's a bit of a, a side um, manifestation of the outcome of practice, perhaps not in our realm right now. But this path to establish the way of awakening, and I think this was one of the great offerings of the Buddha. He wasn't being left with an idealistic, uh, metaphysical um, philosophy that we uh, maybe believe in or we don't. There are plenty of those of, uh, of those within the in the Buddhist um, worldview, which are very can be very supportive and interesting to explore. But basically, the heart of what the Buddha left was a path of practice, a path of practice, as he put it, to um, understand that, um, as he said, I do not perceive even one thing that leads to such great harm and suffering as an undeveloped mind. And I do not perceive one thing that leads to such great benefit and happiness as a cultivated and developed mind. So here we have really the crux of the path, that we have a choice, that we can cultivate this way of awakening to really see very, very clearly these forces of greed, hatred and delusion. As the Buddha said, these forces, they have no beginning and they will have no end. You know, sometimes I think as as human beings, and when we think of an ideal world that we would all love, we would love a world without those forces operating. That that we should idealistically have a world with, with, with no ignorance in it, with no greed in it, with no hatred in it, with no disease in it, with no death in it. You know, and, and a lot of our human endeavor is to really try and create those sort of ideal worlds. If we can just manipulate matter enough with our technologies, we might be able to, to, to bring that world about. I was reading the other day a, a scientist talking about we'll be able to lengthen human life. We might be able to stop the aging process at about 30 years of age and lengthen that for a few decades, maybe even more. I mean, that sounds terrible to me. I mean, I... <laughs> You know, forever stuck as a teenager. <laughs> but, you know, there's something very um, profound about aging, actually. It's, if you look at it from, from the social point of view, it looks like a complete disaster. You know, everything in our, in our industry, in our, in our um, um, you know, million-dollar industry, billion-dollar industry to fight against the aging of the body, you know, to tuck this and nip that and um, uplift this and downlift that, you know, that it's, that it's a, this, basically it's all a statement that something's going wrong. If you're aging, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a personal failure these days. You know, it's ugly, something you hide away. But in fact, what I've, I found myself as, as I'm aging now, going into or 62 soon, that uh, there's many um, very wonderful, unexpected openings in it that you begin to experience yourself less, perhaps, fixated by the sort of package that you've arrived in and more by the consciousness. You feel more the consciousness opening up, the freedom of your consciousness and the connections and openings through that, both relationally into the human field 
and vertically up into the subtle and down into the the the, the earth itself in very um, intuitive and opening ways and also very simple and direct ways that you see things and hear things um, and connect with ways of being in relationship that you don't when you're so fixated as I was when I was younger with maybe how you look or how you come over or your personality that there's this natural quite gentle um, transitions that start to happen. You can feel where this is all going. It's going to the dropping away of the physical form and the opening up into the experience of yourself and the understanding of yourself, not as this body ultimately, but as consciousness, as conscious awareness. And that is like this vast and intimate uh, territory to explore. So this path to, um, to, to cultivate a path, a path that overcomes and sees clearly that which hinders and obstructs and to generate the, and place the causes, the seeds of awakening is a, a line that often I, I use on retreats and, and try and remind myself that's in one of the um, protection chants. We chanted one of them last night. There are many, many of them. Um, whether this one is related to the factors of awakening, where the line goes, Maga hatikilesawa pata upati tamatang, which means Maga hatikilesawa maga means path, hata means to break up, kilesa means that which obstructs, that which hinders, that which blocks the forces of ignorance, greed, hatred and delusion. That the path activity in and of itself, when it's applied, breaks up, has the power to begin to undermine and overcome these forces that delude us, that bring us suffering, that... uh, eclipse our sense of agency and well-being. Pata upati tamatang. Pata means fruit. Upati is to arise. Tamatang, dharmatang, means according to the law of the Dhamma, which means the fruit of this path, the fruit of this activity that we're doing, doesn't come about because I demand it from a place of my will, or from my agenda, I want the fruits of this now, they come about according to the ripening of a mysterious process, actually. In the same way, you see the ripening of a fruit on a tree. You can sit there looking at a mango going, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. But it's going to ripen according to the conditions that bring about that ripening. So when you look at that, this is a very profound way in which to orientate our activity of this path. Because often where we come from in this practice is the sense of I'm doing this from the sense of self. It's me that's doing this and that's me that's, um, you know, feels devastated when it's not going how we want it to go. And then we feel elated when we have moments of it going well. And then we lose all equanimity and perspective to the reality that actually a lot of those fruits that ripen are beyond our, the control, ultimately, of the sense of self. Because the sense of self ultimately is that which we have to see through. as not the ultimate agency of this awakening, but that which is 
can obstruct awakening itself. It's not, it's not that the sense of self is, 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 needs to be demolished or we, we have to get rid of it, but we just have to have it in its right place. The sense of self is, is, is a conduit through which we operate within the world, but it's not awakened consciousness. That's the, that transcends the sense of self. So, so to actually realize what, then what we're engaged with is the application, and this is what we can do, and this is how, why this path is doable for each of us, because it really comes down to doing it in each moment. When we think about it in a very big way, this whole big project of enlightenment, it becomes really overwhelming. You know, we, we read the great saints and we think, God, you know, maybe in 16 lifetimes, maybe. Yeah. But if we think about it in terms of a moment of path activity, a moment of mindfulness of the breath, a moment of again and again and again, starting again, just seeing the, the, what we're with here and now, that feeling of, oh, I can't do this, I can't even get out of bed, the feeling of heaviness, um, the feeling of whatever is arising, whatever mind state, it's just the knowing of it in this moment. In the same way as the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree and looking at Mara, just had moments, I know you, I know this, I know this is the force of ignorance. I know this is the force of restlessness. This is being driven by ambition and greed and fear. It's not bad to be driven by ambition, to have a goal, but when it's driven blindly and then it just drives us on unrelentingly, then it disconnects us from our ability to be really connected with a deeper intelligence, which we call wisdom. So this path, what is this path? to apply these moments. Well, this is what we'll be looking at over this um, period of the retreat. And to understand the path is a path of practice. You know, we can can draw a map of it, we can idealize it, we can debate it, we can talk about which is the best path, what form, which is the best form that it comes in. But at the end of the day, as Ajahn Chah would say, using one of the Pali words, Batipats, the word he used to like to use, batipat, I mean practice. Let's practice this. And just each moment, each moment we come back to establish a moment of path activity. So often this path is described in, in, in different ways, in different metaphors. Um, but one that's very helpful, that's very traditional, um, which is a, a map that we can see and that we can relate to, is described in three aspects. And each of those aspects we're practicing on this retreat already. Um, and to use the, the uh, language of the Theravada, the old um, um, suttas, old language that's uh, close or near to what the Buddha spoke, as far as we understand, these three aspects are called sila, samadhi, and panya. So sila is connected with this activity of ethical living, 
Kilisara led us into the retreat very beautifully last night with uh, with the laying out of these this basic observance of Sila through the five precepts. And it can get more um, subtle and developed than that in various forms of training. The eight precepts, the bhikkhu, bhikkhuni, uh, padimokha, and so on. But these, But all of them condensed down to these five basic guidelines. And if you were going to distill those guidelines, you would come down to the precept of to live in a way that doesn't harm or to uh, train ourselves to live in a way. It's always a training because we always transgress somewhere along the way. But we start again. Whatever has happened, wherever we've gone, whatever we've done, even uh, in the Buddha's time, Angulimala, the great serial killer, yeah, it was uh, had killed over a hundred people. Was just about to kill his mother, um, and was feared by the whole uh, society. Tr- tremendously powerful man, hid out in the woods. Um, wasn't able to be stopped by anyone. But when the Buddha, as they said, they they describe how the Buddha in his morning meditation would survey beings' minds in the realm that he was, and just look what's going on, what's going on and where to appear, what sort of teaching. Um, and then he could see that Angulimala, this great, um, terrifying person, was about to plot to take the life of his mother, which is one thing that you, you shouldn't do. <laughs> there are some karmas that are quite difficult to dissolve. All karmas dissolve ultimately, but that's one. The patricide, matricide. And so the Buddha realized he also had, he realized he could see this, 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 uh, Angulimala had this great potential, actually, underneath his murderous uh, life and murderous intent and his violence, that underneath that he had this enormous potential. So he went out into the forest and um, uh, to catch Alimala, to, to, to try and stop him, to try and turn, turn him away, around. And he, he, he knew, he had divine eye, he went to where he was. And then when Angulimala saw, saw the Buddha, he, he started to run to chase him. Oh, I'll kill him. So he started to run. He was apparently extremely athletic, extremely powerful. But the more he ran, the Buddha was just walking, doing his walking meditation. He couldn't catch the Buddha. He was running, running, running. In the end, he screamed out, stop. And the Buddha turned and he said, I have stopped. You should stop. Yes, sometimes says that's the first Zen teaching. Stop. Just stop. That's what we're trying to do here, isn't it? Just stop the mad momentum of the mind. Just stop. So anyway, Angulimala uh, became a disciple, and then they, uh, the the king's army came into the forest, and they said when they saw Angulimala and they saw him with the Buddha, their hair stood on end because they were so terrified of this guy, and they wanted to take him in. And the Buddha said, "No, he's not. He belongs to me now. He's my disciple." And as the story goes on, Angulimala managed to turn himself around and became a, a, a monk. I mean, he had some, there are some karmic effects from, when the, from the results of how he lived. But the point is, whatever's been done, that it's all workable. That the precept training is the acknowledgement not to create uh, a sense of bad self, I'm a bad, irredeemable person, but to recognize as a guideline 
when there's been a transgression and harm done. And so this is harm to self, harm to other, as an, a point of learning. And when we really feel that, we feel like the conscience as our guidelines, why it's called, the, the activity of conscience is called that which guards, the guardian of the world. When that falters externally in society, when it falters internally within a human being, then there's a breakdown, as we see now, a massive breakdown globally. The faculty of conscience that guides human behavior is being overridden through false views, through these forces of, of greed, hatred, and delusion. But that is very precious. And so the observation and as a ground for awakening this, this cultivation of sila, cultivation of refuge, cultivation of generosity, it's called the parameters, spiritual strengths, all of these lay the ground of the wholesome, as the Buddha said, the cultivation of the wholesome of the mind and daily life. And it's upon that then, or in conjunction with that, because it's not really a linear path, this is a holographic path, a circular path. We just interact and many of us actually start with the meditation practice, many in the West anyway, start with that. And then they realize, oh, sit for a while, oh, that's not great what I'm doing there, and then we start to tidy up our life. So, but wherever you come in, in this path, we start to practice. And so then that path of sila, ethics, um, foundation, in wholesome state, the cultivation of the wholesome, which is a lifelong project, is, uh, becomes a strong support then for, the, for samadhi, which is what we're really primarily cultivating at this part of the retreat and all through the retreat and ongoingly as a foundation practice in our meditation. Samadhi, if you literally broke down the word, often it's translated as concentration in English, which perhaps um, often um, doesn't, doesn't give the fullest sense of the cultivation of this aspect of the path. Sama means um, a sense of together, holding together. Di, D-H-I, at the end of the word, is connected to the word um, dharani, uh, which is to hold. Sometimes I use the word dharani for mantra, to hold, towards a, a holding that has a togetherness. The long A in the middle has a sense of movement. So it has this sense of a togetherness, a holding that, that brings together the energies of body, heart and mind into awareness, into presence, that suffuses body, heart and mind with awareness and presence. And this is primarily brought about through the steadying of attention, the bringing of attention rather than attention going, being following the thinking, the narratives, the sensory experience, going all over the place. It's the training of attention to bring it to one area of focus. And in this regard, we've been working with the first foundation of mindfulness of the breath within the body, the breath energy, that wayodatu, that which moves, that which vibrates, that which we experience as the inhalation and the exhalation, the 
expansion and the contraction. Very simple rhythm, timeless rhythm of the breathing. I mean, you can take attention to any meditation object, and there's many in the teachings, to color, to the elements, to sound, to light, to mantra, and so on. So it doesn't have to be for the breath, but the breath is one that's very um, intimate for us because we're breathing all the time. We're not, we're not creating that and generating that from the mind. And it's also a, a meditation object that brings us into the body, which as we go on into the awakening process, we understand is actually very important to cultivate the capacity to build strength within our embodied experience to be able to meet how it is so that we can withstand what is felt and not just react to what is felt and then through that reactivity land up acting in ways that generate disharmony for ourselves and others. So it's very patient. Why this this part of the path is um, challenging is it because it requires a lot of coming back again and again. It requires a patience. It requires certain cultivation of skills, which we'll start to look at tomorrow to help support the cultivation of this ability to stay steady and present within each moment to what we're present, what we've chosen to be present to, which is the, the breath body experience. And there's ways that uh, we can help support that. We can talk about that tomorrow morning. The great Thai meditation master, Ajahn Tate, talked about these three aspects of the path um, like a bridge spanning across a a fast-flowing river. And we have a bridge to get from one bank to the other one shore to the other, in the same way as we have a path to traverse from the shore of samsara, this experience of forever wandering on, looking for a home somewhere in the shifting sands of this impermanent world, trying to, in a feeling, in a thought, in a situation, in a circumstance, this this taste of samsara is this feeling of it never quite being complete, never arriving, never enough. We're always moving on. So it has this agitation within it. And it's not usually that conscious to us. It's not something we see clearly. We're often more more unconsciously operating and driving us forward. But within samsara, there is what's called nibbana, the unconditioned, the unmoving, the still, the unoriginated, the not going anywhere, the unborn and therefore undying, the deathless. And this we'll explore and can realize this directly. This is the, the most subtle and the most core activity of our meditation, to see both that which drives us on and that which is already remaining, not going anywhere. So from one 
We, this is just a metaphor from one shore to the other, from suffering to non-suffering, from endless wandering to arriving home. However we frame that metaphor, and you could say it's a journey and it has movement in it, but it's all really a journey back here into the timeless. It's not really a journey involving time, although it does involve time. So it's something of a paradox because we always, when we arrive home, we're arriving into the timeless, but when we're cultivating the path, we're in the realm of time. So there's patience. So Ajahn Tate would say it's like that bridge, the, f- the first pillars, the, first, the, t- the far pillars of the bridge, holding up the bridge, are fairly easy to plunge down into the ground because they're in the, 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 the near side of the banks, so that they're going down directly into the earth, like sila ethics, you can, it's sort of tangible. And even wisdom and insight, moments of seeing clearly. We can see, we see when the mind's caught up quite often. But then we get caught and pulled along. What makes the difference is this middle pillar of some samadhi, some gatheredness, some containment. Because the, the mind that has samadhi has power. has a particular kind of power. But to plunge that pillar down through the currents of the river and plunge it into the depths of the earth to hold up the bridge, that's quite hard, in the same way as to plunge the activity of samadhi down through the currents of the mind, which is moving all over the place. That's quite a, that's a training. So you should train patiently to cultivate that pillar. But it's worth the effort. And and in, in many ways, a lot of our practice is the cultivation of that effort, little by little. Not huge, massive effort, and then we collapse. You know, I made the, you know, this massive effort, sat for six hours, and then I didn't even want to sit again, because it was so horrible. You know, but an effort that has ease within it, that has nourishment within it. And that's why sometimes samadhi is also called that which is healing that which is, generates well-being, that which brings about brightness and clarity, that which is connected with joy and happiness and pleasure not dependent on any <coughs> sensory experience within this world. This is why the Buddha called it the highest happiness. That a mind cultivated in samadhi isn't always scanning the sensory experience or scanning others to affirm what we are, or to look for that sense of uh, pleasure and fulfillment, that a mind that has samadhi knows how to generate contentment from within, fulfillment from within, has a lightness and has access, when well-developed, to what's called these jhanas, or these uh, deeper absorptions, immovability of the mind, can still move until there's real liberating wisdom and can even be the ground for subtle insights. It's called extrasensory perception, intuitive knowledge. So this this cultivation of samadhi has many fruits, including helping to sometimes even heal and soothe 
the energetic blocks within the body. But it's the, the power that the Buddha really spoke to in terms of the cultivation of samadhi is that the mind, when it's gathered, and that mind turned to look at that which is deluding, the force of ignorance, the force of greed, hatred and delusion, the hindrances, from subtle to coarse, that mind can see through and be liberated from those forces, can realize the taste of true peace. And so that's why at this stage of the retreat, we're talking about are we looking at what's coming up or are we, you know, just staying with our breath? Generally speaking, it's quite good to develop the muscle of samadhi because we're so used to looking at what comes up. (laughs) It's all so fascinating for us, isn't it? You know, it's endlessly fascinating, all our stories and our struggles and our working it all out. So to develop some discipline or some practice or some skill to be able to turn the mind, the attention away uh, from the, the endless rotations through the mind and the labyrinths of the mind is a, an important practice to cultivate. So as we find in the first foundation of mindfulness that Dara read a little bit from this morning so beautifully, um, this this practice of the establishing of mindfulness in the first foundation where the Buddha lays out the training of coming to breath within the body, body within the breath, uh, where it, uh, the actual practice begins with learning to put to one side, just for now. It doesn't mean to say we don't turn to this as we develop some capacity, but to put to one side the covetousness and the hankering and longing for the world. I mean, we have a lot of that, don't we? Or, on the other side, the grief and the disappointment for the world. We certainly have lots of that. And I was sitting with that, as I said, at the beginning of the talk this afternoon when I was watching the snow. and just felt this grief, really, for how we are now, where we are now. This heart sadness... So, you know, there's a lot to be disappointed about in our lives. What people have done, maybe what happened for us, maybe what happened in our families and our communities, maybe being betrayed, maybe what happened in our, for our ancestors, um, for our communities, maybe what happened on this land. Um, and it's not to say we shouldn't acknowledge and... Um, really respect and make amends for all that's happened where and however we can. But there's also a place where it can be endless because there's so much of it. And so to develop some capacity, not just to push away and deny, it's not from that place, it's an honoring, yes, all of this is here, but just for now to turn the mind to that which is more neutral, to that which is leading to the internal capacity for well-being. And so to replace what's called the abandoning and and to replace that with the application of this um, cultivation with atapi, this word atapi that appears in the 
first foundation of mindfulness, which has the translation of ardent, ardent, interest. I'm interested in this. I know it's hard to get really, really fascinated about the breath. You know, it's not that exciting, but actually it really can be interesting if we really feel into it. I mean, after all, it's keeping us alive. And it's very intimate. What is outside of us comes within this body. You can feel not just the rising and passing of the breath in the lungs, but you can feel the breath energy subtly suffusing as we've been exploring in the Qigong and in the practice, suffusing through the whole cellular structure of the body, oxygenating from the brain down to the torso, the soles of the feet. Mindfully aware, attention to the inhalation and the exhalation, breathing in long, breathing in short. And as was said this morning, experiencing the whole body. I know we don't like to go to our body because, you know, it's just this thing we throw coffee down and drag behind us in the morning, you know, on our big projects every day. We sort of shove down some food, sit it in front of these boxes, you know, computer screens, and TVs and whatever else, in front of a steering wheel. But actually the body, when we bring the right kind of attention to it, and very, we don't have to belabor it. Very simply, it goes, thank you. <laughs> thank you for noticing I'm here. <laughs> so to experience, fully experience, patisangwedi, to feel within the whole body. This is actually the text to subbakai patisangwe, the whole body, to feel within the whole body, feeling the whole body, breathing in. Feeling the whole body, breathing out. Can we enjoy that? That's our practice right now. Can we enjoy that? Can we just be with that? And no, we can't. We, we, get, you know, we go off into our complications and then we notice and there we are. And then how is it now? How is it now? So there's this question, how is it now? Come back, (coughs) feeling another breath. And this is just a moment of path activity, moment by moment. Not a big project, keeping it doable just this much, moment by moment. Calming, experience the whole body, calming, calming the whole body. The kaya sankara, the physical body, calming, soothing the body. The jitta sankara, the heart, the feeling tones of the body. Sensations in the body. The vachi sankara, the mental phenomena of this mental body. So the calming, the soothing of the body. These are the skills that are cultivated in the development of this middle part of the path. And this the Buddha said, thus he, she, they should train ourselves, moment by moment, little by little, day by day, ongoingly, 
planting the seeds that will bear fruit, bringing about our ability to see clearly, to liberate ourselves from the forces of greed, hatred and delusion and to recognize the underlying brilliance, intelligence, purity, peace and sanity of our original nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.